Fagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guests are a pair of broking executives clearly relishing an opportunity to lead a business through a period of accelerated growth in a market that is extremely favourable. James Baird and Paul Richards are co-CEOs and managing partners of Concilium, the wholesale and specialist insurance and reinsurance broker that is part of the expansive Aventum Group. Aventum Group CEO David Behrman laid down a marker back in episode 82, almost two years ago, and it's worth re-listening to that podcast to put this one into context. This encounter is a tour de force. Whilst both James and Paul have worked together for most of their long careers, they are relatively new arrivals to the Aventum fold. But you wouldn't know from listening in here. The two are brimming with enthusiasm for their new home. Concilium already places $500 million of GWP and has incredibly ambitious growth targets. But what's refreshing is that we aren't talking about a familiar tale of private equity backing, debt leverage, M&A and exit multiples. Here we're only using these terms to define what Concilium isn't. And that's what's so fascinating. Concilium is a young broker, with an average age way below that of these two interviewees and this interviewer. It has a progressive mindset on the application of technology in broking, much of which it develops in-house. Yet in other ways, it's incredibly traditional, bulking at debt leverage, external equity investment, and M&A for volume. The calculation here is that by growing organically, whatever it loses in leverage, the broker wins culturally, because it only hires people it feels will fit in and buy into the intermediary's more stable culture. It also banks on that solid environment being a plus for customers who benefit from continuity of service. It's definitely different. And with 30% organic growth on the cards, it certainly seems to be doing something right. Listen on for a really interesting and refreshing encounter. James speaks first. Enjoy the podcast. James and Paul, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks, Mark, and welcome to Aventum and Concilium. Nice to be here. Well, you're both relatively newcomers to Concilium, so give us... An idea of the business. You're the broking part of the Eventum Group. Tell us all about it. So Eventum Group was founded in 1996 and it was 27 years old on the 31st of January this year. We are now basically segregated into four verticals. Rockstone, which is our underwriting platform. Concilium, which is our specialty wholesale and reinsurance and insurance broker. Mulberry, which is our data scientists and actuarial business. And Securus, which is our risk management division that focuses on high hazard industries such as recycling and waste and asbestos removers. How big is it all, if you put it all together? We're about 370 staff now. We've grown rapidly, as you probably are aware. So in 2020, we were about 120 employees. So just gives you a sense of how quickly we're growing. Obviously, we're private, so we haven't published our financials. But revenue this year, on the concilium side of the business, we're hoping we'll be about 30% growth. So if we achieve that, we'll be pretty pleased with our year end in June. There were some numbers on your website, the amount of premium GWP that you're broking, for example. Yeah, so the group is about $1.5 billion. And within concilium, we're going to be touching $500 million. I think that makes us um, one of the fastest riser in the Insurance Times top 50 brokers. As Paul mentioned, we're about 370 people. I think we've got about another 10 to 15 that are in flight coming into land during Q1. And probably the group will be touching about 400 people by 30 June this year. Our financial year end is actually 30 June. So we run 1-7 through 30 June. One of the great things about the organisation from an employee perspective is that 
the average age within the group, circa early 30s. So Paul and I lift the average age, drag it up. (laughs) And also um, up until very recently, we were proud to say that we had a 50-50 male and female split. Clearly with the sort of rapid growth of hiring people, that split has slightly skewed more to men versus women. But, you know, our ambition is to get that back to 50-50 or even um, more positively skewed to the ladies and make sure that we're recruiting ladies in senior positions. And to that point, within Concilium, we have recently appointed a chief claims officer, Nicola Chapman, and a new COO, Susie Bazir. So in terms of Concilium, specialty broking, how much do you work within the Eventum group? Do you see yourself, you know, there's just these four pillars and you don't talk to each other or is it a different way of working? You're all talking to each other. Are you working with Rockstone all the time to bring in new products and things for customers? Yeah, I'm in week four. And one of the things that's very clear to me in my first four weeks is the culture within Eventum and within Concilium and Rockstone. And one of those is family. And it really feels like family here. Obviously, we have to be aware of sensitivities between our broking and underwriting business. But very much we place capacity for Rockstone and we work with them for distribution. We're recruiting and building in the Rockstone side of the business and we're on the broking side helping them with supporting getting capacity in for those underwriting businesses. So yeah, we're very much part of the group. Clearly when Concilium, we're building and growing in those specialty sectors and looking for opportunities, which I'm sure we'll come on to discuss. Yes, I was last in this building interviewing David Behrman. That was nearly two years ago. Certainly what came out of that podcast was the ambition that he's got, that drive that he's got. It reminded me of other entrepreneurial brokers of times past who have probably, you know, now many multiples of that size. I'm sure the business has grown hugely in that time. And obviously we've had the acquisition of Mulberry. Now you're brought in to obviously to turbocharge Concilium. What's the plan? What's the scale of that ambition? Well, as you've pointed out, David has got huge ambition. So there is no limit to the plan. We are as eager as he is to grow consider him to be not just the best, but the most inspiring broker in Lime Street. The plan is quite simple. The strategy is around product, distribution and service. Up until 30 June 2022, we had three teams that existed within Concilium. That's our delegated risk solutions team, our Concilium risk solutions team, which is our UK wholesale team, and our Concilium international property team who had a focus on the Caribbean, Gulf of Mexico and Latin America. We now have a financial lines team with circa 12 to 14 people in that team. We now have an aviation team with four people in that team. And we've just launched a sedent-driven fact team. We have got plans to look at other key product areas, such as property, US property, US casualty, political violence and terror that kind of goes hand in hand with property. So what we need to do is focus on those products where the market is currently challenged. We want to bring solutions to that sector but also is looking at our distribution. As I said, we were more focused on Central and Latin America in property and the UK in a wholesale perspective from GL property and the like. But now we have got people who have joined the company who bring distribution into Canada, the US, Australia and to South Africa. We've recently hired Matt Gould into our UK team, but he's going to grow out our international casualty team. So we've got huge ambitions. It's very exciting. And it's great that we have one person to present our plan to, to get one person's agreement. You can get things done pretty quickly. Say yes in the morning, by the afternoon, they're already asking you how you're getting on. Well, I mean, mean, David would say, right, I've agreed that this morning. Have you spoken to our head of talent to go and recruit people? Why isn't it actioned yet? (laughs) We are ambitious, but we've got great attributes at Concilium. You mentioned agility, but one of the key, or some of the key areas are our independence. As I mentioned, we're private, but we are 
public about being debt free. We're public about not being private equity owned and having the ability to be in control of our destiny. So we're not being directed by external shareholders. The shareholders are internal management and staff. And like we said, we're all ambitious for growth, but we're going to do it at the right time on our own scale. Yeah. So it's not like with PE brokers, as the clock is ticking, it's sort of on the wall in the boardroom. You can see it's sort of, exactly yeah, everyone's right. waiting for year five when you're going to have this big bang. Exactly. Well, who, right. who, who even says year five? I mean, <laughs> yeah. year five would be quite a good sort of runway to work towards, but obviously there's swapping in and out of equity partners. So you never really get that sort of time, I don't think. And it's to implement a strategy, you need time. You've mentioned that David is ambitious. He really is. But yeah, what's great is he is what I would describe as a patient but expectant investor. And so we are ambitious. We want to grow, but we're going to do it the right way. We, as Paul has touched on, the culture in this organization is like no other that I've experienced in my sort of 28 years. What we aren't going to do and what we don't need to do is to go and hire people that may have big portfolios of business but don't have the right character for the group. We kind of use the acid test is, would you invite that person to your house on the weekend for a barbecue, your family? If you would, we'd consider employing them. But if you wouldn't, even if they've got a $10 million portfolio, we walk away. Richard Watson is one of our latest episodes. First time I did a podcast with him, he spoke about low ego and high collaboration. Is is that the sort of thing that you're looking for? You want people who are going to help other people, don't keep all their secrets, quite happy to share them with the rest of the team, teach the rest of the team how to go fishing? Definitely, definitely. And we want to learn from some of the experiences we've had. And one of the things we've talked about early on is not having revenue share between divisions. We want that to be everyone pulling in the same direction. We've mentioned the family culture. If we're going to succeed, when we succeed, it's going to be success for everybody. We've got equity partner models in place, so everyone's aligned, but it's alignment financially, but we want people culturally aligned. We want the right people here with the same beliefs, with the same passions as we have, and come on that journey with us. It's going to be an exciting ride, and and we want to get the right people along with it. I think that low ego point, leadership comes from the top, and if you look at David, I mean, he doesn't have an ego. He is fully grounded on the floor. He has one car. He wears the same watch he had got for his <laughs> 21st birthday. He has one house. He's got this ambition and this drive and so have we. And it's about, you know, as you say, high collaboration. You're only going to win if you pull together. If you have internal fiefdoms, you aren't going to succeed. And, and we really want to punch way above our weight. Sounds like the Warren Buffett of broking. You're going to tell me he only eats <laughs> cheeseburgers and uh, drinks cherry Coke. Anyway, but getting specifically onto your plan. So Again, in the latest podcast with Richard Watson, he was talking about he didn't want to go into a market where he wasn't welcome. He didn't want to have to punch his way into a market. He wanted to be dragged into the market. He wanted that market to pull him in to say, we need you. We need you here. It sounds like you're very much of a similar sort of mindset. You're going to go into the markets that really need the work at the moment. Mm, and, yeah. you know, The ones that are stressed, you'll be running towards the fire in that sense. We love running towards a challenge. Absolutely. If you look what's just happened with the uh, 1-1 treaty renewals, especially the property cap sector, we run within the Eventum Group, I think the largest Caribbean property binder. David and I have recently been on a trip and we're there to hold our clients' hands through this process and we're looking to add capacity and liquidity to that facility all the time. So yeah, we do love a challenge and it's where you can really add value. And if you try and do it in a strategic way, it's going to tie the customers into you for longer because they see that value you add during the process. In terms of that market, it sounds like we're in a sort of a big fact renaissance again. Everyone's doubled their retentions. 
line sizes having to go down. And again, you know, if you're talking about beachfront Caribbean hotels, we've all been there. Mm. And it sounds like a potential boom time if you can get that capacity to that risk. And I presume you can get the right price right now. Yeah. I mean, again, it sounds like a very interesting opportunity. We think so. As James has referenced, we've recently announced the employment and recruitment of a global fact team. And the timing of that seems absolutely perfect. As you say, the treaty renewals have been tough and students will look for an opportunity to use facultative reinsurance in a more meaningful way. And we think in a discreet way, you know, separate to their treaty brokers so they can offload some of that risk discreetly through an independent broker like us. So in your nimble, run towards risk kind of philosophy, should we always see you as being a specialist? Um, you know, do you have ambitions to become a generalist at some point in the future? But at the moment, do you think is the strategy obviously to stay deep and strong in very particular areas? So when you ask someone out here on Lime Street and you ask them, what does Killingsillium do? What are they good at? What do I know them for? And obviously if you say it was about Marsh, you say, well, I think they do virtually everything. Yeah. Presume you wouldn't want them to say that about consulting them. No, pick no. three or four classes, Absolutely. so you're really good. Or- Think about the old Lloyd Thompson firm of the late 90s. Yeah. They were really good at political risk and construction and certain things. Yeah. yeah. Those challenged areas, if you look at what's going on at the moment, as we said, you've got the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, all just generally cat-exposed areas. And I mean, look, we're sat here on, I think, the 6th or the 7th of February. And so far this year, we've had devastating floods in Auckland. We've just had tragic events going on in Turkey. One of your recent guests talked about underwriters haven't worked out how to underwrite for climate change yet. The world, whether it's natural catastrophes, whether it's geopolitical, is becoming a more risky place. The frequency is increasing. The severity is getting worse. So there's a real opportunity for the insurance market to basically partner with the communities they work in to give people stability. So we want to run towards those hard-to-place areas where people will remember us. I mean, becoming a general broker, I mean, look, never say never, but our runway is so long and we've not even taxied out onto it yet. (laughs) We've got a huge amount of runway to cover and who knows in 10 years, hopefully I retired by then, but who knows where we'll be. But right now we're not becoming generalists. We used to use an expression of being sort of generalist specialists, but we've got so much just to be narrow and deep in each vertical. So you'll only become a generous once you're a specialist in absolutely everything. And I suppose you could say, right, then you are a generous by, de- well, by default. I guess it becomes a natural evolution when you get to that stage. And, and like James said, that's a long way down the runway at the moment. But for the immediate and short-term, medium-term future, it's niche specialty, whether that's product or industry. Our latest financial lines team is a good example of that. What we think are some of the best people, not the best people in the market are what they do in a specialty product center with deep experience and a growing client base. So that's a typical example. Cyber is an obvious area where we are still looking to build. We still think there's great opportunity there, whether it's to complement our existing clients and or to build our um, niche specialty on a wholesale basis. So something like financial lines, you see that there was a very big adjustment in the marketplace, a lot of dislocation in that marketplace, and then move. Yeah. When you've said, yes, this is going to be the right kind of thing for us to do. Is that, is that kind of the modus operandi? And presumably is that's the same thinking going on with when you decide to enter any new class, you need to find the right people, you need to have the right situation in the marketplace. Well, the right people, definitely. And, and one thing that James outlined, our strategy is around product distribution and service. We haven't really covered the service element of that. And this is where it's important to come back to what Concilium is and isn't. You know, Concilium is independent, debt-free, fiercely private. Leicester Ward is being a great place to work. So we offer a great platform 
for people that feel they want a new broking business to come and join and be on a great platform like that. Someone described it as the grass is always greener. Actually, we think we've got a beautiful summer meadow, spring meadow that people <laughs> want to come and play in and come and join us. And the importance about that, Mark, is that we're not up for M&A. We're not PE. So to your point, we're not going to be flipping in five to seven years. So we can tell our clients and give our clients a lot of certainty about the stability of our teams and the service they're going to deliver without the distraction of external shareholders pulling them in different directions and trying to merge different cultures. No, look, we're not into buying balance sheets. We are into hiring the best possible people we can who have the right character and who share the values that our organisation has. I mean, we were talking to David earlier and look, M&A is not off the table if there was a fantastic opportunity which stacked up, if you think about what I call old-fashioned M&A, you used to do a transaction where the people reflected the same culture that your organization had. They brought a certain skill set and expertise and additional product set to your business to help you guys get one-on-one -on -one equal three, not two. So if there was that sort of opportunity out there, we would consider it. But we're not just going to be buying revenue for the sake of buying revenue, which appears in vogue at the moment. Yeah. As Paul said, this is about creating a fantastic platform that allows people to come and really just focus on what they enjoy doing. Whether if you're a broker or a producer or you're a technical account manager, we're just going to give you the platform to grow you and develop your career. In terms of that focus on what you are and what you aren't and that service, you know, who is your customer? Should we always think of you as being a wholesale and obviously reinsurance as well, obviously the ultimate wholesale, always wholesale, never retail? No, I think there's a couple of important distinctions. Our latest financial lines team does have and will have some direct customers. It does blur, doesn't it? At some point when something's such a specialist product, you end up talking to the client directly anyway. Yeah, well, it's the territories we focus on there, as Paul was alluding to, you know, we work a lot in the international financial centres, you know, Jersey, Guernsey, Cayman, Bermuda, Luxembourg and Ireland. And there is a real need there to deliver expert advice. And we have an internal coverage council here who, in our financial lines team, helps write our insurance contracts for our customers. And we've just developed a network within these communities, whether it's with independent directors, corporate service providers, law firms, administrators, that we can go and deliver that service direct to customer. But we want to be absolutely crystal clear here. We are not looking to put boots on the ground in any jurisdiction where we receive business from retail brokers or wholesale brokers. It's really a very small niche. Yep. So we won't expect to see you opening up in all the major sort of wholesale hubs, sort of the Singapore's, the Miami's or New York's. Well, or we're not in conflict with our broken partners that we want to form strong relationships with. I mean, James and I have known each other a long time, 23 years, and we first met living and working in Australia. So one of the benefits of having a retail experience is you bring that retail experience to a retail broker in another territory and the service levels we find or the experience we've had and feedback from our clients is the service levels are turned up because you can't switch off your service levels if you're one minute dealing with a direct customer and, and the next dealing with a broker. So that's an important element to us. It's a real privilege to be trusted with the clients of a, another broker and have the opportunity to work with them we know what it's like to win and have to win and retain those sort of clients. Well, so we walk in their shoes. Exactly I mean, we, right. On our direct book, we have to reinvent ourselves every year because we know that our competitors in the UK will be talking to those customers. So we, we want to bring a, a retail-led approach to wholesale broking. 
but definitely not conflict with those territories. I mean, in terms of wholesale markets, will one day we want in the near future a Bermuda or Middle East Singapore hub for placement? Then that's possible, but not as a conflict to our distribution and our overseas broking partners. So we shouldn't necessarily think of you as a London business, but but probably London headquartered. London-centric. London-centric. Yeah. And then being London-centric, what's it like in London at the moment? How's London performing? Is it doing what you need it to do? Is it stepping up and providing those limits? And obviously, you know, in really traditionally difficult areas in post-hurricane environments like the Caribbean, what's the risk appetite like? It's probably too early to tell. I mean, people have just started getting out of the ice bath after the renewal season. (laughs) The bruising's gone down. But I think really what the carriers, the primary carriers are looking at now is, you know, what does this mean for what they need to get on the upfront deals? And then, of course, as I just spoke to earlier, these tragic events that have just occurred, I mean, I guess that's going to impact confidence. And yeah, markets trade on confidence. I forget the expression you use, but, you know, if we pick on financial lines, which is something obviously I've known for 28 years, we did see a real turn in the DNO market in London, third and fourth quarter for sure last year. And that was because there was more confidence coming back to the market. There was more capacity in the market. Securities, class actions, all the legal systems, they're still working through the... Partly there have been slightly less IPOs because yeah. the market has been sort of shut. And so... I haven't heard the word SPAC mentioned for a few, <laughs> no, few months. True, yeah. So look, I think yeah, what we are seeing definitely that the domestic markets in some of the territories we work, they're starting to open their shoulders a bit more now. I think there'll be some of that business that came here during the eye of the storm will return to markets. I hope some of those policyholders take a slightly longer term view and remember that when they couldn't get the cover domestically, you know, London stepped up for them. But it's going to be interesting to see when we speak to our Rockstone colleagues, at the minute, they're not onboarding a lot of new business because they're waiting to see what happens with the 1.3, the 1.4 and the 1.7 yeah. reels. You speak to a lot of brokers and CEOs. I don't think we'll truly know where the 2023 market is until probably Q3 of 2023, once we've seen the impact of treaty reels. But do you have confidence that the London market is going to step up? I mean, never mind the price, but is it going to be able to provide that cover? I think more confidence now than we did, you know, depending on what product class you pick. But while the Decile 10 review was going on, obviously that became very challenging for us as a Lloyds broker and to attract that sort of capital or to be able to bring that business back into London. So far, I think there seems to be a more appetite within Lloyds, whether that's for delegated business or facultative business, there seems more appetite. But that said, whilst we are sitting here in Lime Street and we are a London-centric broker, as we said, what we aren't restricted on is who we can access globally. So Singapore has traditionally offered competitive rates on certain product lines. We can access Singapore. What I've been impressed with in my early days is how creative and innovative and nimble we are about accessing markets, whether that be in Africa or the Middle East, for example. So we will go where the opportunity is and where the placement capability is. In this changing cycle, particularly the changing pricing cycle of the last four to five years, we've seen a big increase in US admitted lines risk moving into the excess and surplus lines market. And obviously part of that is cyclical. It ebbs and flows with hard and soft markets. It'll come back into the admitted market in softer times and be thrown back out again in harder times. Have you been riding that, one? And two, do you think that's going to continue? Look, for sure. During the hard market, 
the ENS markets grew substantially. I mean, you'll have the statistics. Yeah, yeah. But you know what we are seeing now. Obviously, it's a reporting season at the moment, especially in the US. And you're seeing that the growth in the ENS markets for the big carriers over there is slowing down. We are seeing more and more carriers looking to get their filings in. Yeah, actually, Rockstone in the US, we have a, a farm and ranch agricultural product, and we've just gone live in Arizona with admitted paper. So. The admitted market is going to want some of that ENS market back. But, you know, as I said, we're not even two months into the year and there's already been two significant natural catastrophes. And it's, it's about confidence and it's about how these treaty renewals play out. Because it might be if some of the US carriers get the same sort of treatment on their treaty renewals, they might want to push more business into the ENS where they can charge the rates they want for it. So it sounds like it's a lot of uncertainty. Now, I was going to ask you whether the, the London market players obviously have all had their own difficult treaty renewals. I mean, everyone's had a difficult treaty renewal, no matter who they are, or whether they're renter or whether they've had a difficult retro renewal, or they've had a difficult time with the ILS investors or whatever, or even just core equity investors. Everyone's had a hard time. Is it the sort of market where some of those increased reinsurance costs are definitely tried to be passed on back to the insurance customers? Of course, the insurance customers have already had four or five years of price rises. Mm. Again, without wishing to give the same answer, it's early in the year. We haven't seen that. It depends which sector you're in. In our financial lines client base, we're starting to see some leveling off. We've already seen DNO markets starting to compete for price again. So I think it depends on that old adage in a market, is it what's driven by competition? As we would expect, I'm sure there will be another cycle as there has been for the 35 years I've been in the insurance market. So when capital becomes tight and prices rise, that's surely going to attract more capital. That more capital will increase the competition and smooth out those effects. And we're seeing some of that already in the commercial DNO market, for example. Look, it's, a, it's definitely a two-speed market. It's depending on if you are in one of those challenge sectors. Now, David and I have just done a, a trip, you know, meeting a, a lot of property owners. And I think the one thing that we have a responsibility to do is to educate the buyers of the product around what the issues are. You're right. You know, you've seen rates going up for the last three or four years, and now they're getting a big rate increase. And they've obviously got people they answer to, especially if you're in a condo, you've got the owners to answer to, why are my service charges going up? And I think capital is the raw material of our industry. In the various reports you read at 1-1, 15% of that capital that was allocated to Property Cat has left the market. Unfortunately for the buyers, it's the perfect storm because right now for the first time really in my working life, we've now got inflation. And inflation has really impacted property values. So not only are these property owners having to pay a rate increase, their values of the properties have increased. So they've now got it's a double whammy. And then when you go and sit on one of these islands, inflation in the offshore islands is definitely running at more than it is in the sort of mainland countries. And then you have that surge inflation that comes through when there is an event, you know, everyone wants to get product onto these islands and there's a huge demand. So we are seeing some of those costings being passed on. But yeah, as I say, we've got a responsibility to educate and advocate on behalf of our customers. Yeah, because I suppose they're very sensitive to energy price changes, aren't they? Because they're 100% imported. They've got none of their own energy at all. They're going to have to have some kind of gas burning power plant on most of the islands, haven't they? Or even an old oil fire of power stations, yep. haven't they? Some of them. It sounds pretty tough. Let's change the subject. You're a very ambitious organisation, but also quite ambitious in terms of the way you want to apply technology to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. mm. Certainly, I get that impression from when I go to your website and a lot of sort of white heat of technology comes out at you. So how does that most likely to manifest itself in sort of day-to-day -day what you're doing at Concilium? I think there's two areas, really, Mark. 
as you said, we have technology running through our veins. A lot of that has come from the development of our Rockstone business and the underwriting platforms that led us to invest in the ability to adapt our own software and our own products. So we've got members of staff on the team that have the skills to adapt us very quickly, which we think is unique and a differentiator. So there are two areas we're focused on. One is a traditional broking platform where we're in the midst of reviewing what technology we have there and we will install a new and have a new broking platform to operate from this year. But once we've got that, we'll overlay that with additional technology that enhances the customer service. So as I said, they have skills internally to have differentiators when we can deliver data to our customers, collect data from our customers. Our goal is to really to make the customer journey more efficient and more effective, see how we can use data to collect information that they would traditionally have to package themselves into some sort of underwriting submission. So if we can gather that data either so you from you can do them, that for them. Well, that's the goal, Mark. We're not there yet, but that's our vision is to help them to do that either from themselves or from additional separate sources. And then once we've got that, transfer that to insurers in a lot quicker and agile way. London is in the middle of digitization processes. Obviously, it seems like we've been doing this for the last 25 years, but this year seems to be a year of delivery. Are you kind of excited about some of the new platforms you can go and unleash yourselves on? Very, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're working on, again, back to our strategy of distribution. One of those key areas is digital distribution. So we're working already on a product that we know we can digitally distribute, but using the technology we've got here, we'll be able to build something bigger, better, faster than we've had before. So definitely a key area. I remember listening to your podcast with David when you were talking about risk-bearing entities and eating some of your own cooking. And this journey that David and this group's been on for 27 years is quite extraordinary. Back in 2012, David first got into digital products. And as we experienced at our previous firm, he had a poor experience with the third-party vendor. It cost too much money. They delivered it two years late and it didn't work. So he just said, right, never again, we're insourcing. So we have eight in-house software developers that work for Eventum Group. So as Paul said, we're now very adept at spinning up digital products. We have a group head of change who is transforming how we work as a business and how we engage third parties. I was just sat on a call with a very, very established MGA yesterday with our head of group head of change. And when he was explaining to the cover holder that we can create them an underwriting system that they key into, they key in once, they can then structure that data, it can then report to their carriers directly, that they can then share with their clients a digital proposal form, et cetera, that they can complete and it comes straight in. They were like, I didn't realize we could do that. And currently they're getting PDFs and saving it in static <laughs> files. Mm. And so we got from that side of it, it's a real advantage having those people in the house. And then flipping onto the other side, what is super exciting for us this year is our Mulberry business. Yeah. As I said, Mulberry's our data science and actuarial business. So we have more software programmers in that area, but we also have a number of actuaries. And we're just about to launch ADA, which is our artificial digital actuary. And what I would suggest is in the future, we try and get you a meeting with the people who run that project. But effectively, what the team at Mulberry looked to do was to think about how an MGA could use actuaries in a more effective way. And we use it now in Rockstone, so it's tried and tested. And what Mulberry does is basically ingests all of the MGA's data. It allows it to be cleansed. It's got machine AI built into it. So each time it spots an error, it learns and it changes the borderos. The next stage is once the data has been cleansed, it allows you to model the data, to run your what-if scenarios. And the third part of it, which is the outputs, is all about predictive analytics. 
it allows you within basically 15 days of you submitting a board row to look at trends in your underlying portfolio. If you think about the traditional ways MGAs report, normally the board rows three months after you've written Absolutely, the risk, yeah. it doesn't hit the carrier till about six months. And by the time they've actually reviewed the first six months, you're coming up for the binder review. So what that means is that you've carried on insuring red doors in Kentucky and they keep getting burgled, but the blue doors didn't. So why don't you change that within 15 days so you preserve your capital, you're more likely to get a renewal, and you're more likely to get increased product offerings from your capacity provider. So we're really excited about Mulberry. We expect to be launching it formally at the beginning of Q2, and it really will revolutionize the way that MGAs manage and control their data. It will help them control the conversation with the capacity providers. It overlays IBNR down to each single account. So you know they know their ULRs and their ILRs within 15 days of that border are going in. So you're going to be using that with your own delegated authority customers? We are using it. So if you look at our delegated risk solutions team that sits within Concilium, there's two sides to it. You've got the first party, which is obviously our Rockstone business, yeah. and you've got our third party, which is a, a number of other third-party cover holders. And yeah, a number of those cover holders are now starting to utilize it. We are running demos. We're allowing customers to basically have a three-month trial to watch it in action. And then it's a subscription model and it's very affordable. I mean, if you think about most MGAs don't have an in-house actuary, they outsource it. That's an expensive operation. And the thing is, 80% of the work is administrative and repetitive. So Ada takes that 80% and does it automatically, allowing the actuaries then to focus on the 20%, which is all around portfolio modeling and predictive analytics and getting ahead of the loss curves. And where are your loss drivers? How do we tweak the loss drivers? That sounds absolutely amazing. It's an observation I'd make is that we're talking about technology change over the last 25 years. And one of the problems in the London market would have been that perhaps those larger brokers, they liked technology change because they often saw it as a way of beating up the smaller brokers. You know, so they'd say, yeah, we're doing technology because we've got 50 million to spend on this thing. And obviously the smaller brokers can't. They're going to have to come to us or they're going to have to just put themselves out of business. Yeah. And of course, and so those smaller brokers completely resisted all that change. It's amazing. It seems to be now the technology's come on in leaps and bounds. It's the smaller brokers who are more nimble and able to embrace that change. I think better, that's absolutely right. You know, quicker because I mean, you're culturally more adept at embracing and it. And we oh. don't have legacy platforms that we have to untangle from various many employees and, and many multiple geographic locations and various acquisitions. So, so just to give I mean, our COO, group CEO, Tom Downs, is 32. Make me feel very old. <laughs> when he sends emails to the change team, the project teams, I read his emails and I'm like, can you please explain what you mean by that? It's a whole new language to me. Paul's been here just over four weeks. I've been here coming up to three months, I think now. And I kind of feel we're more of a data digital company working in the insurance sector as opposed to an insurance broking firm. because. If you look at the business, in every area of the business, we have got digital teams working on whether it's distribution, efficiencies, connecting with clients, connecting with markets. And you know, you talked about some of the market blueprints, et cetera. We've just had to take control of our own destiny. There's been too much talk. It feels like it has been spoken about for 25 years. We want to take control of our destiny and just plow on. And that's what we're doing. I think you asked us about M&A and growth opportunities. We've discussed that, but where we will go into partnerships, at least, is with data and technology providers, whether that's artificial intelligence, data capture, data warehousing. We definitely see our ability, both with the skill sets 
and our flexibility and nimbleness to really take advantage of that and be a much more modern broker. I think clients are looking for that and we feel perfectly positioned to be able to deliver on it. I suppose Mulberry was an acquisition, obviously a small one. but um... I mean, technically it was a debt for equity swap, so no money changed hands at the time. But when David and the team did that transaction, I think there was 12 people in Mulberry. Over the last 20 months, David and a group have invested a significant amount of money and there's now 32 people in that area. What's really cool, Mark, is we have about 10 of the Mulberries come into this office in London and the other sort of 20 are in and out of the office up in Cambridge. So their office is on a Trinity College Science Park. <laughs> uh, and I went up to see them. Fortunately, I wasn't wearing a suit, but you turn up at this science park in the Bradfield building, which is this amazing collection of biotech, pharma companies, data companies, etc. Probably companies will be seeing listed on the NASDAQ or the FTSE in the coming years. But the environment and the atmosphere up there is quite something. So it's a real sort of contrast. As much as I love Lime Street, it's a real contrast. <laughs> oh, that's really, really good. It sounds like technologically, you know, smaller brokers, it's a bit like the sort of mobile phone technology. Developing nation, you wouldn't now go and install a load of copper cables into every home. You don't need to do that anymore. You just put up a few masts and, and then you can get 4G, 5G coverage all over the place. So you would never go back that way. It seems like you can leap ahead by embracing technology. It's more about your own state of mind, really, yeah. than anything else. Well, it? that and we haven't got lots of that copper cabling and infrastructure to pull out of this building. It's all on the masts, as you say. And as I say, you know, average age of early 30s. So we've got this wonderful group here that are curious, who want to learn more, who are very adept from a technology perspective and probably it's the dinosaurs like Paul and I that are slowing it down a bit but veterans I think we were veterans yeah veterans yes your co-CEOs that's my final question so that doesn't happen very very often so who's the boss well you're both the boss so how does it work well look the real boss is Susie Bazir our COO and Nicola Chapman our chief claims officer (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they basically tell us what needs to be done. Well, we better add David Behrman into that if they, Mark's going to put this out on the podcast. <laughs> the way I would describe it is, you know, look, Paul and I have been friends and business colleagues for over 23 years. We've been through numerous organisations together. We definitely both have different strengths and abilities. One of our long-standing clients historically has been a firm called Hargreaves Lansdowne. Yeah. So founded by Peter Hargreaves and Stephen Lansdowne and Peter Hargreaves wrote a great book called In for a Penny. It's a really interesting read about how they built that business. It was always stuck with me when it comes to partnerships. They basically said that what they agreed was where they're in agreement with something, they go ahead. And where they're not in agreement, they agree not to pursue it. So from our perspective, we're new here. And as I've said earlier, there's a huge runway. And there are so many things that we already know we agree on. We're just going to focus on those. The Mm. things that we possibly may have a different view on, we don't even need to consider now. And they might not even come up, but it's probably five, 10 years down the track. So I think, you know, from our perspective, it's just a continuing what has been a proven and successful partnership for 23 years. So is one of you the sort of flair one, one's the more technical one or how does it work? We've got different approaches and different styles, but yeah, we'll take our strengths and use those in the best way. He's Goose and I'm Maverick. (laughs) (laughs) giving things away now but as we've described we are nimble we're agile we're technology advanced we're going that direction we're entrepreneurial and you say that it's not common but perhaps it is more common in that sort of environment in the more modern technology environment where you have co-ceos or at least let's call it partners at the top that are in a partnership 
you've heard we've got a lot of ground to cover. So between two of us, we can cover ground more quickly. And that's the key. Because he's singing from the same hymn sheet, I suppose it doesn't really matter. And you're not spending the whole time reporting to each other because you're too busy. I don't want to use the analogy of a marriage, but (laughs) there is trust and respect and understanding and compromise. And what is great doing this with Paul is that he knows what my views and thoughts would be anyway and vice versa. And so, yeah, it's not sending emails or WhatsApps. Hey, what do you think about this? It's just crack on. Let's get it done. And then not always going off and doing things that surprise you. You know what he's going to do. So, And the fact that he's just done it doesn't, doesn't surprise I you I think after 23 years, Mark, there aren't going to be surprises anymore. <laughs> we, we know each other and how we operate. And it's a great partnership and it's been successful in the past. So we're very confident it's going to be successful now. You've got a good market to work with. You've got a great platform to work on. And it sounds like you've got a good relationship to build on. So I wish you all the best. And I think we've learned a lot about both of you and um, and all your plans. And I I just wish you all the best with those. And make sure you come and check in at some point in the future to give us an update. We certainly will. Thanks, Mark. Thanks very much, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.